The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Lori Behranavand. She is a professor of law and director of the Center for Agriculture and Food Systems at the Vermont Law and Graduate School in South Royalton, Vermont. She teaches a variety of courses on food regulation and policy, and she is the author of many scholarly articles and policy papers, including a blueprint for a national food strategy in 2017 with Harvard's Food Law and Policy Clinic. In 2022, she wrote an article, Exposed and at Risk, an Opportunity to Strengthen Enforcement of Pesticide Regulations for Farm Worker Safety. And most recently, she is one of the lead authors of a report titled The State of Prison Food in New England, a Survey of Federal and State Policy. And this was produced with Farm to Institution of New England. We'll be diving into that report as well as covering other key policy topics during our time together. But I want to direct our listeners to Dr. Behranavan's website, labelsunwrapped.org, which is designed to help empower consumers in interpreting multiple confusing food labels. Welcome, Lori. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I have been following your center's work, and I so appreciate your attention to what I call invisible populations. So farm workers, people with disabilities, as well as those in prison. And in preparation for this interview, I listened to several of your keynote presentations, and in one of them, you made a truly excellent point. You said, people don't consider the work that goes into the food that we eat. And I'm just curious, with a law degree, how is it that you became interested in food and ag policy issues? It was a pretty long and windy road to get there, but I started as a law student focused on environmental law, and it took me a while to realize what attracted me to environmental law, and I can't say that I actually knew it when I was a student, but later in my career when I was working at Legal Aid in our disability law project, I realized what I was really interested in and focused on was public health and how the environment impacts public health, how the government doesn't necessarily help to support individuals in need of services in the public health sector. And then with the client population that I worked with, I started to wonder what role food and nutrition and access to food played in some of the different conditions and issues that they were experiencing. And then Vermont Law School, when I eventually started teaching there, was interested in having a center for agriculture and food systems. And it just so happened that I was really interested in researching and exploring all of those different connections. And so that was really how I got into food and agriculture. And on a more personal note, my mom actually struggled with diet-related disease. And that piece and sort of the consumer-facing issues, you mentioned labels unwrapped, 
that piece became really intriguing to me. So that was one of the first areas that I started researching when I started working in food and ag. It's so important to have policy experts at the table when we talk about these issues, because really policy drives everything. And first we have to value the power of food, and then we have to have the policies to uphold that value. So I think that you make a wonderful guest for this program. I want to talk about some of the key takeaways from several of your reports, but I want to bring up something that you have written about, and that is your awareness that there are gaps in national food regulation. I wonder from your legal perspective, if you could share where you see those gaps. Yeah, I think what's so interesting about the food system in the U.S. is there's a lot of different areas of law or even issue areas, if you want to call them that, where the U.S. government or policymakers and lawmakers are trying to think about how to have a coordinated response. And the food system happens to be one of those issue areas where we don't do that. And what's so striking about it is the fact that the food system has so many tentacles and touches so many other areas that are pretty heavily regulated, but also sometimes regulated inconsistently. And so I think some of the big gaps that we've seen, they're almost disconnects more than I would say that they're gaps where you have an agency like the Department of Agriculture setting dietary guidelines with health and human services. But then you also have the Department of Agriculture administering large sums of money to help support the production of crops that aren't necessarily in line with what the dietary guidelines would suggest. Like if we look at spending on specialty crops or what we know as fruits and vegetables and nuts, that doesn't align with what the dietary guidelines are recommending, the amounts that we should consume of those particular foods. So I think there are a ton of areas where we see a lot of misalignment. And then you mentioned the report that we wrote about farm workers and pesticide exposure. And one of the big gaps there is the fact that OSHA, the agency that typically sets workplace standards, is not the agency that addresses pesticide exposure for farm workers. It's actually the EPA. But the EPA also happens to be the agency that registers pesticides for use. And so you have to wonder if there's a bit of a conflict there, if that's not necessarily taking into account the true goals of what we're trying to do with workplace standards and whether there's some level of compromise or whether there's some level of industry influence that perhaps doesn't necessarily set standards at the levels that we would like. So there's so many different examples of this in the food system. And there's no single body that's necessarily looking across our law and policy landscape to say, what are all the different laws and policies that impact the food system? And what are opportunities for coordination and alignment? And where are the places where we see gaps? And where are the places where we see conflicts and tensions? And how do we resolve that? Well, a gap or a misalignment that I see too, is that there aren't national standards of protection. So there isn't consistency in protections. Yeah. 
That's totally true. And this is sort of front of mind for me right now because it's an issue that I'm researching this summer. But what's so interesting about that, if, if you think about having an agency like OSHA that is supposed to set workplace standards to protect workers and that that's the goal of why that agency was created in the first place, there's a weird provision that says that if another agency sets a workplace standard, OSHA can't. But you have to wonder if the goal of that was worker safety and you have different agencies setting regulations, it does make you wonder if there's some inequities in the way that workers are protected depending on whether or not you have OSHA setting the standards or whether you have a different agency setting the standards. And does that truly protect workers or does it mean that that other agency might have other things that they're taking into account that aren't solely focused on worker safety? Exactly. I'm so glad you brought this up because there are three issues that I think could be discussed under this umbrella. We certainly saw the impact of COVID. I mean, that should have been a great teaching opportunity. So I'm based in the Midwest, and I know Vermont and the Northeast has a lot of dairy, but we have a lot of meat processing plants. And the ways in which meatpacking workers were not protected was despicable. Talk about people that need legal protection. So now we're in the growing season. We've got crops in the ground. There are pesticides being applied. And on top of that, we've got climate pressure. So we've got extreme heat. You in Vermont recently suffered extreme flooding. Yeah. Everything seems to be coming together and not in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other issues, so that that report addressed both pesticide exposure and then also heat-related illness. And the reason that we covered those two topics in particular, not that they're the only issues that farm workers face, but those were the two that we heard from advocates who work with farm workers, that those were the most pressing. And those were the ones that they really felt like there needed to be some literature around circulating and some research and recommendations. After we released that report, OSHA put out a notice of proposed rulemaking to set a heat standard, both an indoor and outdoor heat standard. They were supposed to do both, but they haven't done that yet. And in the meantime, we've had a couple of very hot summers. We're in the middle of a very hot summer. And I know that there have been instances where farm workers have suffered extreme heat stress this summer. I can't imagine that we're even hearing about all the instances of that. And they're not the only workers. There are a lot of outdoor workers. But if you combine that with the fact that they're also being exposed to pesticides and in some instances, maybe wildfire smoke. I mean, we just got an alert in Vermont that our air quality is bad because of wildfires elsewhere. So if you combine all of those things together, it's a recipe for disaster, really. And you would think that OSHA would then step up the pace and set some standards, but we just haven't seen them yet, unfortunately. Right. Well, you know, you made a wise observation at one of the keynote presentations you made recently that food is really at the core of national and international security. And you have just described a disaster happening as we speak, 
where we won't be able to produce as much food as we have, as well as losing farm workers and meatpacking industry workers due to the unsafe conditions where they're forced to work. You gave a talk at the Global National Security Institute, and there was discussion about foreign ownership of land as well as corporate ownership, which you raised. And you spoke about the insanity, really, of producing so many commodity crops with little attention to the crops that people like me recommend that we eat more of, like specialty crops, as you mentioned, but they're really fruits and vegetables. Yeah. So we've got a real conundrum here. Is the farm bill a way to correct that imbalance? It's so funny. I was just going to say right before you asked that question, I wish that the farm bill was going to address those. I mean, I know that advocates are pushing really hard for the farm bill to provide a higher degree of subsidies to the types of foods that we recommend that people eat and to increase access to them so that they're not unaffordable. The signs don't necessarily seem to be indicating that this is going to be a transformational farm bill necessarily. And I know we keep hoping every five years that the farm bill is going to be a transformational one. I honestly thought after COVID, when everything shut down and we saw so much potential with local and regional food systems, and people really saw how quickly the local and regional food systems were able to respond and how resilient they were, I really thought that that was going to be a turning point and that we would start to see law and policymakers learn from the fact that increasingly we're going to be experiencing climate disasters and maybe not a pandemic, but some other events that will create similar issues and concerns, whether it be national security issues or climate-related issues. And there's any number of things that we're going to face. And the resilience of local and regional food systems couldn't have been illustrated more clearly than it was during the pandemic. And we saw some support for it, but I don't think we saw the learning from that that I had hoped that we would see and really having people appreciate that that's a valuable thing that we should be investing in and one that we should really be supporting and propping up for a whole host of reasons, not just for resilience, but also for economic development and rural development. I mean, there's a million reasons why we should be considering supporting local and regional food systems. And I thought the pandemic would be the thing that really catalyzed that. But I just don't know that that's the case, unfortunately. I agree. Well, let me take a little break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Lori Bayronavand. She is a professor of law and director of the Center for Agriculture and Food Systems at the Vermont Law and Graduate School in South Royalton, Vermont. Okay, Lori, we should dive into your latest report, which has to do with prison food. And I know that it is regional to New England, but it has national implications. Or as you mentioned, that this report could be used to set policies nationally. What was it that sparked your interest in prison food? So interestingly, I mean, the way that our center works it's a little bit like a law and policy firm. So we take our direction from project partners. 
who are in need of law and policy resources. And Farm to Institution New England has been working on the issue of food and the carceral system, I think, for a few years now. And we've done some work with them on procurement policies, and we've done some farm to school work. We hadn't ever done any work on food in prison. So this is the first time that we were focusing on an institution that was different from what we had focused on previously. And we set about on this project, it took a few years actually for us to complete this report. But what we realized was that there's just not a lot of resources out there. So for people who are interested in this particular subject matter, there's a great report that Impact Justice put out, Eating Behind Bars. There's a lot of really interesting and valuable advocacy work around the country that's happening, but there's not a lot of resources for people to access. So our hope was we could start somewhat small with New England and just provide a state of the law and policy on prison food in New England. And not surprisingly, by the end of this project, we realized that there were a bunch of other issues that we could continue to work on and dive into. Indeed. So I am interested in prison food because whether we're talking about children in school or individuals who need rehabilitation of any kind, food is at the heart of our healing. And in becoming the best people we can be, it starts with good food and clean water and clean air. And so to look at the kind of food that's served in prison and even the attitudes around the kind of food that's served in prison, you know, I've spoken with people who are in the food industry that provides meals to prisons. And I was so surprised by some of their attitudes. It's almost like people who are incarcerated don't deserve good food. And yet it's such a key to healing. Mm -hmm. I would be not giving the issue full attention if I didn't recognize the fact that people have really mixed feelings about focusing on the issue of food in prisons to begin with. I was just on a call where we were talking about this. Why wouldn't we be focusing our efforts on food in hospitals or food in schools? And we do do that too. Right. But it really is a loaded issue. You know, we participate in advisory groups and other small groups that are working on food and corrections. And there are a lot of people from corrections on those calls. I do think that there are people that are trying to figure out how to do better. Their budgets are really limited and their food budgets in particular are really limited. And then another big issue that we encountered is that some of the contracts that the facilities enter into with the big food service providers, like you were just talking about, some of them restrict the facility from being able to use other food. So if they have like a garden or if they have a farm at the facility, that they're not able to bring that food into the facility. And then they also have sort of like what you'd think of as like a non-compete where if they could source the food locally or regionally and they're able to do that more economically, they're prevented from being able to do that too because of the exclusivity in those contracts. So that's an issue that we want to research more and we want to understand more. Every state seems to have a different 
way that they address those issues. And in some states, the laws are preventing that. And it's a nut that I definitely want to crack and try to figure out what some of the obstacles are. But there are a lot of advocates that are working really hard in that space as well and interviewing people who are incarcerated and interviewing the food service managers to really understand what the true obstacles are to having better and more nutritious food in prison. Yeah. I'm really glad you mentioned the issue of contracts because years ago I was writing an article about campus food service. And it's a similar situation in that you've got an industrial kitchen that needs to feed many people. But what I learned in terms of what was keeping those good food service directors from contracting with local farmers and getting more locally produced food into the kitchen was indeed the contract. And it was a food service director who educated me and said, you're better off not having the contract because then you've got the freedom or before you sign that contract, make sure you get to be the one who says we're allowed to have 50% say of the produce served in this facility come from local farmers or our own campus-based farm. Well, the Mountain View Correctional Facility, they are an outlier, aren't they? Yep. When we wrote this report, we got feedback from people who have been advocates who have been working in this space, but we also got feedback from corrections across the New England states because we wanted to make sure that we were portraying things accurately. But some of them wanted to talk about the report and whether they thought that the report was actually going to be useful to food service managers, directors, and corrections. And, you know, validly, their concerns were we weren't providing any guidance to them about how, for example, like how to negotiate a contract or what they should be watching out for in their contract. And I think that that's certainly an area for us to be thinking about how to work more closely with corrections or work more closely with advocates that are working with corrections to figure out what it is that they need to be able to help support them too. It's an interesting multi-layered, if you think about it like from a law and policy perspective, because the contracting issues, those are like private law in a sense. It's a contract between two parties. It's procurement. There's states that have legislation that have goals about sourcing foods for institutions that are related to economic development for the region. So there's that layer to it. And then there's also a whole set of administrative regulations and then policy manuals that also govern correction. So trying to figure out what the best levers are, I think, is what advocates are working on and to try to figure out which of those is going to have the best long-lasting impact in corrections. Well, my recollection in interviewing Mark McBride, who was in charge of the food service at Mountain View, and they're in Maine, there were improvements in behavior, which is a huge issue in prisons. People were happier. They were healthier. It seems to me like it's a win-win situation. So again, getting back to that food as medicine piece and using the value of food, the power of food to save money. And I believe he was able to serve his clientele for much less money. Yep. And he also 
incorporated workforce development because there was the aspect of, you know, the growing and the production, but then also the creating and cultivating the menus and cooking. And so it is a whole amazing program that really serves that institution well and serves the people in that institution well. I think one area that we took out of this report or we didn't focus on as much was the questions about labor in prison. And certainly there are concerns that people have about having farms in prisons where you have people who are incarcerated working on those farms making much less than minimum wage and then outsourcing that food and not actually serving that food in the prison itself and that that feels like modern day slavery. So if a prison is going to have a farm and produce food, there are legitimate concerns about outsourcing that food to other people and the labor force that is producing that food and not getting paid regular wages that they would get paid otherwise and what the implications of that are. Yeah. Well, I will provide a link to this report because you're right. There are many factors and you have some policy recommendations at the end and good guidelines to consider moving forward and to just raise awareness of what goes on among a population that is very much removed from society. I call them these parallel universes. Lori, we are out of time, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to share with our listeners anything you want them to take away about any of your work. Well, thank you. I just want to thank you for having me. It's been an honor to be on the show. I think it's easy for people to ignore what you referred to as invisible populations or the populations that we don't come into contact with on a day-to-day basis. And I'm not sure that people in the U.S. have a good sense of what is happening with those invisible populations. And I think if they knew and if they took a harder look at that, they would feel a lot of discomfort with it. In particular, when we think about farm workers and we think about the fact that they're the foundation of our food system and without them, we wouldn't eat. I think people would be willing to pay the small amount more for their food that might guarantee better working conditions for farm workers. I think if people were to objectively think about the issue of food in prisons, whether or not you think that people who have been incarcerated should be entitled to good food, it does set people up for not great dietary habits going forward. And what does that mean for our healthcare system? What does that mean for the children that they may have eventually? And there is not a lot of nutrition education that's happening in facilities. So regardless of what people think, there are reasons for all of us to be concerned about these issues because it impacts all of us. So all of these invisible populations, whether they're invisible or not to us, the work that they do and the lives that they live have an impact on all of us. And so my hope is that people just start to pay more attention to that and to be able to think about the policy issues that individuals suggest around them with a more objective lens. Well, your center helps us do that. 
And I want to thank you so much for your work. We've got to close. So I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Lori Bayranavand. She is a professor of law and director of the Center for Agriculture and Food Systems at the Vermont Law and Graduate School in South Royalton, Vermont. I will provide a link, Lori, to your center, and people can access the wealth of reports and resources that you have for them. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much.